Hi there, welcome to the Raising Cinephiles podcast, a show about passing on your love of cinema to the next generation. I'm your host, Jessica Cantor, and I have worked in all facets of the entertainment industry for the last 20 years, and recently became a mom. This week, our guest is Luca De Laurentiis. Luca is a film producer who has expanded into the role of executive producer in commercial and branded innovation. He comes from a generation of filmmakers, including his grandfather, the legendary Dino De Laurentiis, who made the 1976 King Kong amongst other incredible films. Dino gave Luca his start, and now he's looking forward to sharing his love of cinema with his 11-month-old daughter. Always remember that myself and guests are speaking from personal experience, not giving parenting advice. Let's go ahead and dive into the episode. Hello and welcome back to the Raising Cinephiles podcast. This is your host, Jessica Cantor, and today I'm here with Luca De Laurentiis. He is a film producer and an executive producer in the branded immersive space, and he comes from some incredible film pedigree, so I am very excited to have you here. Thank you for joining. It's great to be here. Thanks, Jessica. I'm going to start with our very first question, which is, what is your first movie memory? Oh my gosh. This is going to be kind of a loaded response. It's, it's kind of funny. I kind of have I, my first movie memory actually is more so of me actually being on set than actually watching a movie, which is weird. But I think I probably watched Pinocchio about a thousand times growing up in Spain. My mom's Italian and she would use Stromboli as like a ploy for me to eat my dinner or to behave. And I just took such a loving for that film. I obviously saw a lot of a young little Italian boy. And yeah, I think that's probably my first film that really had a lasting effect on me and that sort of imprinted some of the values that I still have today. Yeah, what's the memory of being on set? I think I was just like thrown in to be a random kid like extra. I think I was like, I remember like being maybe like some, like I think it was in, in Spain and it was, I think my father was working on a film and it was like in some sort of, I don't know, barn setting. I remember there being a lot of hay. <laughs> But yeah, that was my first, I didn't really quite understand it. I knew that there was a film being shot, but the process of it, of course, was still a bewildering thing to me. But yeah, I have kind of like a a weird relationship with film, obviously, like being so close to it and watching it. And it's, it's been an ongoing love affair, so to speak. Yeah. Well, talk a little bit about who your grandfather was. And maybe you can talk about how you discovered kind of film history in your family. Yeah, it was, you grew up immersed in it in, in a way. My father's side, and my father's a director in Spain. He does Spanish sitcoms. And my grandfather on my father's side was also a film producer in Spain. And also my grandfather as well on my mother's side. So it kind of was like, I remember just growing up and going to family dinners and family gatherings. And, and cinema was always something that was spoken about. And not just from a perspective of, of really enjoying the craft, but just the business of it as well. And it really intrigued me and it it normalized it for me. It was something that was just part of the fabric of my family. So watching the films never really corresponded to me hearing about the films and being around my family. So they were almost like two different worlds. I never really started to put two and two together until until I was a little bit older. Yeah, I mean, it like 
working in the business, you kind of see how much of the magic is stripped away. Yeah. And so I can totally understand a young person would go to the movies and get swept up in the magic and kind of not realize that's what your parents were talking about, really. You know, like the kind of logistical underbelly of how something gets made versus kind of the magic of what ends up on screen. Yeah. And I think that's like important to remind ourselves of people that aren't so close to the industry. If you've never been on a film set before, I think people generally go to a movie and think that things just come together magically and all the steps prior to that, how hard it is to make a film. And I think that's the beauty of it all is understanding like the craft and how difficult it is to make a film, but also appreciating it and even being close to it. You can still go, still go watch a film and just like be completely enveloped by it and, and, and enjoy it for what it is. So it's, it's a really interesting medium in that way. You know, I've, I've started the podcast talking to a lot of kind of behind the scenes people and when you work in the business you kind of forget that everybody got into it because of our love of cinema and then on top of that to stay in it after all of the abuse we endure we really really love cinema in ntv are just really good yeah. storytelling there's no other reason to stay in a business that overworks you and i remember i worked when my first job i worked more than my friends who are investment bankers wow. and at my assistant salary was like 28,000 plus overtime. You know, like I could barely afford my rent in New York without supplemental help from my parents. Yeah. And yet I work endless hours. Yeah, totally. And it, it's something that's, it's hard to, if you haven't been through it, if you haven't been through the growing up in production, it, it's hard to reiterate to somebody, hey, I just spent 14 hours on set and made like 125 bucks. Yeah. Like that, <laughs> mathematically, that like that hourly rate that doesn't make sense. How do you survive? But it's something that you have to experience and it's not meant for everyone. The reason I fell in love with it was just because I love just working with such different profiles of creative profiles. Being on a film set, you've got access to hair and makeup, to a VFX supervisor, to the director, to the producer. It's like, you've got this like bevy of just wonderful, talented people that you just have, you have access to. And starting to work in the industry as like a PA and, and being able to touch all those departments was something that like, that I loved. But it, I didn't have a love affair from the beginning. It, it took a while to manifest. And what was your family rituals in watching cinema growing up? And then when did you kind of take it on your own? Yeah, well, just, just some context. I, I moved to LA when I was five. And with my younger brother, and my mom and my dad had stayed in Spain and coming to LA, I, I didn't know how to speak English. So it was just a, a bit of a radical move for me. And I found myself in LA and not knowing the language and culturally it was so, it was so different than what I was used to that it, I didn't realize all this until I really started to talk about it. But really like films was what allowed me to assimilate to, to, to American culture and allowed me to like, allowed me to adapt and allowed me to learn English essentially. That was like my first real introduction to it. And I, it, it allowed me to to help me process a little bit what I was going through when I was young, not knowing it, but thinking back about the movies that I was watching now makes me realize that it just it was it, it almost served as a coping mechanism in a way. Did you do you remember what films they were? My my mom was like pretty liberal in terms of, of t- TV in the bedroom. Like me and my brother would we would we would fall asleep to to, to films every night 
And listen, the, this list of films isn't going to blow anybody away. It's your standard hits, but a lot of them have similar themes of kind of what you learn in film school. It's this, this character comes into a new environment or a new world. It's something, some, the character arrives into town. So that, that's how I felt. So it was like things like I loved like Home Alone was something that we would watch year round. And it's probably because it's like, it's just like in, in the new city trying to like find his wits about him. That's kind of how I felt. And. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, which is adolescent teens that like also merge into this into this mm-hmm. new city that they're trying to adapt in, and uh, so really like a lot of stories with those similar themes, like city slickers and stuff like that. So just from a pop culture perspective, like films that sort of manifested those types of storylines mm-hmm. and those feelings, you know, and they're all kind of have happy endings, <laughs> which is helpful, yeah. Yeah. kind of assimilating into a new world. When I was 15, I danced one summer in the south of France, and I will never forget one of the boys from Lyon was like obsessed with rap music and rap videos, kind of that culture on television and found out I was from New York City and literally thought, like, he's like, how many times have you seen guns and gun shootings on the street? And and I was like, what are you talking about? And like the cultural idea of what the US and let alone New York City was like versus kind of the reality of like, it's just like this walking down the street. I don't know what you mean. So I can imagine like even with the movies coming into real American culture was still likely a little bit of a culture shock. Yeah, no, it totally was. And I didn't like quite understand it, but I knew from just the sort of the visceral reaction that I would get from it. It's like, oh, I can kind of relate to this, like in, in a weird way, even though I was obviously really young and could barely understand the language, it, it could shows you like how cinema can really tap in to these into these emotions without you even realizing it and even talking about it now it's like i'm starting to even process it even more that's oh wow that was like a really helpful coping mechanism that helped me understand make sense of it all in a way and made me feel like i wasn't really that i wasn't alone so it's yeah i think that's one of one of the powerful things about film that sort of people it's hard for them to express it in that way because it's yeah it's difficult to process sometimes and it's all evolving, right? It's, you watch a film when you were a kid that still affects you to this day. And it's like, how, you yeah, know, it's, it's a piece of art, right? That stays with you and, and fluctuates in terms of how yeah. you, you translate it. And it's interesting how some films can transcend generations and other films really can't, really, really can't. They're like incredibly inappropriate. A few that have come up, like The Goonies, where there's a disabled person that's tied up in a basement. Like there's no world where that's okay now. You know, some of the gender dynamics in some of the John Hughes films, like when you look back at them, especially you have a young daughter, not wanting her to think she has to fall, like be negged by a boy to think that he likes her. You know, like those are kind of old fashioned ideas that are in some kind of the way we're trying to break free from that as a culture. And then there are films that, get mentioned on the podcast that kind of you know i think have meaning in your family like i've heard king kong be a key movie for a few of my guests on the podcast you know they continue to want to share those films with their children and and so it's just like so interesting how some films just can transcend and other films cannot yeah or it's just so old now that those ideas just feel absurd anyway yeah. Well, having listened to your your past episodes, it, I feel like I'm probably not the first one that, that has said Home Alone or 
Teenage Mutant Turtles, or I feel like there's probably a common theme behind a lot of these films. And it's like, why, like, why do some films resonate with us? Why are we talking about some films 20 years later? And why aren't we, and why are some films forgotten? This art form is all subjective, right? Like any other art is, but some films really have a way of touching a broad audience and being able to like, and that's sticking with us. I was, I was on the flight home a couple of days ago and there was like this 21 year old kid from Chile watching Dumb and Dumber and, and loving it. And I'm like, have you seen that movie before? And he's like, yeah, I love it. I'm like, wow, that's crazy. Cause it's like me and him can have a conversation about a piece of art that was yeah that transcended both generations. So yeah, I don't I mean, know. I think it's, yeah. it's the same with in a lot of ways with literature also and music of some just fall away. They're trendy for the moment. You know, the human condition is the human condition is the human condition. And, you know, there are only so many ways I think we can explore those feelings. And I do think the stories that are honest, just truly honest, are the ones that transcend generations. Yeah. Yeah, because it's it's we're we're all we're all human at the end of the day, and we're all very much alike. Believe sometimes we yeah. can remind ourselves of that, but I think it humanizes us all and finds like a common thread between True. all of us. Like Home Alone is, I'm sure I'm not the only one that's been alone at home imagining if somebody came in, what would I do to protect myself? Like where is the bat? How would I do it? Yeah. And they took that idea to such a extreme. This young kid creating a whole world to protect himself. And, but it's something that universally, I think everyone can relate to because we've all been home alone and had that nervousness or even like in the dark in our bedroom as kids of like, what, what would we do if somebody came in my window right now? Yeah. Well, you definitely throw some marbles on the ground and heat, heat up the doorknob and all that stuff. But yeah, it's funny because how do you explain something like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles where there's poor turtles living in the sewer of New York? That's such an abstracted idea and it still carries its weight. So I mean, a remake just came out, right? Yeah, like, yeah. I'm interested to see how that sort of keeps transcending and just the state of where cinema and film is going and how younger people are adapting it is something that I think about all the time. Yeah. Before we get into our children, tell me a little bit more of, you know, how you developed your taste in your kind of high school, college years, kind of teens to early 20s. And then, you know, in that, when did you know or decide you wanted to go into the family? Yeah, I was, I I grew up loving film. And I think, as I mentioned before, it it was just such an amazing coping mechanism for me. And it was a really important part of my adolescence. And then I started to grow out of it a little bit. I think that's partly the reason because it's just I think I grew up so so close to it as, you know, entertainment purposes, but also just being around it all the time through my family and whatnot, that I there was a point where I was like, you know what, like I feel like I need to set up be, like be on my own path, do my own thing, explore something that I don't know yet. And I kind of turned away from film as for a little bit, probably from like middle school to high school. I was just like, I was, I was it just, it wasn't a huge part of my upbringing in that regard. And it wasn't until, until after high school that I found myself a little lost trying to figure out what I wanted to do in life. And I was offered my first job on, on a film set that kind of changed everything for me. Yeah. What, what film was it? The film was The Young Hannibal. Came out in two. It was shot in two thousand five. It was starring Gaspar Willier, who tragically 
passed away last year in a skiing accident. But yeah, I, I got offered a job to, to be a production assistant in Prague. And it was a, a prequel to, uh, to Hannibal, one of the Hannibal films. And I just got thrown straight into it. It was like, I remember seeing the call sheet in the first day and it was like day one of 125. And I'm like, oh, wow, like this is, this is for real. And I had never really, like, really been on set from the capacity of actually working on set. So showed up to set and we were shooting in like a, a castle in, in Prague and I wore Converse's and like <laughs> did what I was doing. And I quickly learned that I was, this was serious. So I got some proper set shoes and uh, just like, I, I fell in love with it. It was six day weeks. It was really intense. It was really hard. But back to the, my earlier point, just being able to like work with such talented people and find ways to understand people's working styles and ways that you can adapt to it to help them reach their goals, even if it's like a monetary goal on set. But I like the challenge of that. I liked having to deal with sometimes complex personalities and 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 help them on set, and also just like the the randomness of it all like that's something that i still love about production it's it's it, it could be so random that they're like hey well you need to go and you need to go and stand by the guy that's herding the sheep for some reason and you just spend half half the day with the sheep herder and you're like talking to him about life and it's what other profession can you do that and it's because and it just allows you to just get an insight into somebody else's life and it doesn't even feel like you're working at the moment so yeah the randomness of it all i, I really was intrigued by it yeah movie production is like plan plan and then it all falls apart right at the moment mm. so you have to come up with these creative solutions to fix whatever like oh and it rained let's move yeah. around the whole schedule you know it's a lot of puzzle pieces yeah lots of puzzle pieces i never understood why the producers were so stressed out i was like why does this guy look so stressed out <laughs> and then I'm obviously being on the side of it now but yeah, it is something really cherishing about just like thinking about those times where you're just like a little production assistant, but you just, you're able to soak it all in. So it reminds you to really appreciate the time when you have it. Yeah. Was there an expectation of you having the family history as you enter the industry for the types of content you were going to work on as, as you're finding your way? I mean, I, I know there's like a, a blessing and a curse to having connected yeah. in Hollywood. You know? So what was that like for you? I think it's funny. I never really thought about it that way, but I don't think I don't think there was much of a perception of, pe- of, of what people thought that I was going to do with it. I, it felt like wide open. Like there was never any external pressure to get into the industry. There was never, obviously working with your family, you want to prove your worth, but I kind of came into it not knowing what I was getting myself into. So I think it was just a challenge on myself to, to succeed. And, and also because I liked it, like I wanted to keep working in it, but there weren't any expectations really. Like I think that, I think they, I think my family was just like happy and proud to see that I was excelling in it and I was doing well and that we can have the, we could have a seat at the table and, and talk about production. So yeah, no, no real expectation. I think it was more so on myself to understand when you're working as a PA, like the upside is that you're like sort of touching all, I PA'd for a long time, almost eight, <laughs> just like eight years, but like, yeah, probably eight years thinking, well, maybe like more like five years, but felt like eight. But yeah, you're kind of, you're touching all these different departments. So you, at a certain point, you're like, wait, which direction do I want to go down? And that's when I feel like I needed to start making some real decisions. But for those five years, I was just like, I was just, I was letting it all sink in and, and traveling and living out of my suitcase. And I worked on a film with, with my dad as well in Spain. And so it was a way of like understanding my roots and get closer to them. But 
But at a certain point, it was time to understand where I wanted to go next with it. And where was that? That's still an evolving question. But really, being so close to it and seeing the how difficult it is to, to make a film and seeing my relatives like spend a lot of years trying to make a film and being so close to that that I was like, wait, I kind of want to just start making stuff now. I wanted to start. I want to start producing stuff now. I, I don't want to. I don't want to wait. I don't have the patience right now to wait four or five years to make a film. And so I kind of went down the commercial route where I was able to like work with directors, a multitude of directors in a short amount of time and create content quickly and different types of content, like integrated content, playing this innovative space. So I kind of etched out my sort of my own space within Mm -hmm. my family realm. That's still evolving, but I always knew that. And I couldn't really articulate it growing up, but I was like, I kind of want to do something a little different than what you guys are doing. I don't know what that is yet, but put my own take on it. Yeah, I think I, I did something similar in my third assistant role, kind of, I really loved development and sat between kind of production and, and direction uh, or like kind of creative producing. And I just loved being close to story and writers. Find a, like I was living in New York and I, I did the wine scenes and I had a job at Columbia Pictures or Sony and on a TV show. And I just couldn't find a, an edge up. I just kept getting like stuck in that role. And so I stepped into digital there was this wide open playing field and everybody needed content on socials and I could just go after the best creators I could find. I could make stuff myself. I, there were budgets. I, it wasn't like, you know, and all of a sudden I went from being an assistant to like a, a associate director of marketing, <laughs> making stuff overnight and kind of just shot up and sideways and kind of circled back now kind of missing story development and writing. But yeah, that similarly, like there's not very many mid-level positions in the industry. So you just kind of have to make your own way. Yeah, no, that's great. Yeah, it it takes some courage, right? One step back, two steps forward kind of thing. But yeah, it's a very, this business can be very linear in a way and also very, very non-linear too of, of how you end up there. And you start to especially on set, you start to realize that every, everybody has their own path. And I think that encourage people to their, if they're interested in to getting in the space that like, it's, it's kind of open. It's open in terms of if you're willing to work and you are willing to like be malleable to different personalities and work, work long hours. If you're ready to put in the work, then there's a path for you. And I think they're kind of a mixed path too. Like I remember for, I worked for Sundance when I first moved to LA, the fe- the film festival, and I sat on the airplane on the way home from the producer who won the festival that year. We were talking and she's like, oh, I have such a week ahead of me. I have like three commercials I'm doing. Like, I was like, wait, wait a second, you produce commercials too? But you're like just one Sundance. Like, aren't you just a movie producer? And, and you know, I was wrapping my head around like the reality of like independent movie producers don't make that much money. Like we have to supplement our income with all sorts of ways of using this skill set and really opened my eyes to like, wow, you could be the most prestigious person in the industry right now. And it's still not a sustainable living. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that I think the beautiful thing about this profession, though, is that you're you can produce a movie like you can kind of do you can do anything right like it's you're challenged with such complex problems and hurdles from financial to creative accounting to unique problem solving to working with different building mobilizing teams to demobilizing teams to running payroll like there's so many there's so many facets into into production that really it's 
you learn so much that it, it's easily adaptable to to other professions, which is as I'm going down my career path, it's, hey, if I don't want to be in film and the entertainment industry in 10 years, I feel like I can adapt a lot of my a lot of my learnings to to another profession. It's very entrepreneurial, a creator in the industry for every aspect, like whether you're whatever aspect of your, your own little business, whether you're a cinematographer or an actor or production designer, like you have to build your business to get hired and, and work. Yeah. I recently just watched The Offer, which I think was a really fun depiction of what it means to be a producer. <laughs> I don't know if you watched yeah, it. Yeah, it's great. It's great. Yeah. Just like all of the random stuff you have to do, get it made and the pressure and it can go away at any moment. Your movie is not done until it's in the... Yeah, it's a very fine margin in this game. Yeah. And it's, I would I would encourage more films to come out that sort of depict the, the in a narrative, what kind of man, mandible shot. I don't know if you've seen that. It was like, a, I think what film was it? Don Quixote. They had the documentary of that whole like film collapse. But I think, it, I think I'm a big proponent. So let's get more films out there of how they made, how they shot interesting films or movies that have had like complex and interesting ways of, of shooting them. You probably have a very interesting lens into some notable film to do that yourself. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes I feel like I do. Yeah, I mean, I remember swimming with sharks when I was growing up. It was sort of de depiction of the crazy Hollywood executive kind of meant. And I still was attracted to working in development, even though I said the truth of that world. Yeah. All right, let's move on to... Before, you, before we go into that, I would like to recommend a film that's really interesting. It's called I'm a Born Liar. Uh -huh. It's about Federico Fellini and about his process. It's kind of hard oh, to find. But it's a, it's a great film. Oh, that sounds really interesting. I'm a born liar. So now you have a 11 month old daughter, and I'm curious. You know, for me, having a, a child kind of changed a little bit of my voice as a writer and the type of content and stories I wanted to tell. And then on top of it, like the cost of my time was higher, which really conflicts with what the industry asks of you and so i'm curious what this year you know this first hard year of having a child how that has affected you and, and your work yeah so much to unpack there it's the first three months were really difficult it's me and my wife are here and our immediate our parents are spread across the country and the world so it was all hands on deck and it was any parent would tell you to sleep this night and stuff like that but it, i always thought like having i always thought overhearing their conversations before I had a baby when they're like, oh yeah, are you getting any sleep? Like this, that. I thought it was just small talk that they made just to pass the time. And then I was like, wait, no, this is actually legit. But it's great. Like it's every, every day is, is getting, it's just wonderful to see. It's something that, but in terms of balancing the, the work-life balance, you interpret it in a different, through a different lens than you would like anything else when you have it, when you have a child. But it's, it's something that you want her to, you want your, your child to, to be around, to be proud of their their parents when they're older, and to be proud of the work that they were involved in and their body of work and the life that they led. So it's it's making me be a bit more conscious of the type of work that I'm getting involved in and the type of people that I'm working with. Just because I, it's not just about yourself anymore. You're creating a little bit of a, of a legacy, and I don't think you really understand, it, or at least I didn't understand it until you see this like little mini me version of yourself. Yeah. And you're like, oh no, everything I do yeah. affects this person. Yeah. 
yeah, there's no perfect upbringing. And I think that it's, you can only do your best and you can, you can only try to make up for the mistakes that you felt like your parents made and try not to make those and make your own mistakes is like the, is, is my goal. So what's, what are your, you and your wife's stance on screen time? No right or wrong answer. Yeah. Everybody has their yeah. own preference. Yeah. You know what? I, I, we have justified it in a way that like, Hey, she can watch like cartoons and if she's still young, she have a little bit of screen time as long as in a different language is our goal. So it's like, we wanted her to learn Spanish because you know, obviously I was born there and I want her to be able to have a relationship with her family in Spain. So Sp- Spanish is a really important thing for her. And I learned English watching TV and watching TV and stuff like that. So right now there isn't, it's just, I think it's in a different language. It's okay. Obviously we want to limit it to a certain extent, but ask me when they're, when she's one or two or three and run a, a long overhaul flight. You know, a lot yeah. of people say like all rules go away on flight. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I had one guest talk about how his kids only thought the iPads worked in the air <laughs> for a long time. I let my son watch. I'm a single mom by choice. So I don't like if I need to take a shower or something, like he's of the age where he like, you know, I can't just let him loose in my bathroom. But the thing that actually surprised me is he's in daycare during the day and he speaks Spanish and, and I didn't, you know, his language is kind of exploding and he speaks a lot of English with me and every once in a while he'll be like, see, and I'm like, Oh, Oh, okay. And then I went to school one day and they're like, you know, out of nowhere, he just said, and he says, agua for like, he just knows a lot of Spanish words because they all speak Spanish amongst the teachers and speak to him in Spanish. And I speak to him in English and, but I'm not there. I had no idea. So yeah, my, my son is, accidentally bilingual that's perfect i don't think there's any fault to i'm just gonna go on the record like when we were growing up when i was growing up screen time was like yeah they were like oh you shouldn't watch too much tv but i grew up with the tv in my room i fell asleep with the tv watching tv all the time that kind of upbringing compounded with ipad and iphone i think that's a bit too over the top yeah how do you split the difference a little bit so yeah I mean, my son would much prefer to run around outside than yeah. watch a show. Yeah. Like that, he always is like, we'll be sitting, I'll put something on and he'll be like, outside. So I'm like, okay, turn the thing off. I'm like, well, we're in our pajamas right now and I need a break. You know, I think there became like an epidemic of parents not parenting and just putting their kids in front of a screen because it was just easier. And I think if you're consciously showing the media to have conversations for self-development for a split second because you need to decompress that your relationship can be better. I think those are all good ways to use the tool of a media. You know, it's been so interesting diving into this a little bit with the different guests, especially as they get older, being able to use cinema, cinema and television to unpack things that are coming in their life when, before it becomes a thing. So they can talk about, was that appropriate the way that boy talked to that girl? Do you want to behave this way? Do you think the consequences were appropriate to their actions? And kind of start being able to have conversations outside of themselves before they're in trouble and they can't think clearly. You're almost like able as a parent to start forming a little, some, not a narrative, but some sort of, I guess, some guardrails a little bit to help shape who you feel like is the best version of, of your child just by the films that, that you show them. Um, yeah. Interesting. I haven't done a full movie yet, really. Yeah. Like he, and he's not really ready. You know, he's not, he's a year and a half, so he's not ready to sit through a movie. He doesn't have the ability to do that yet, to follow a storyline. 
for that long. Yeah. I'm going to be really conscious about like taking him to a movie theater and seeing a movie and getting a sense of what that means and the etiquette to be in a place with other people. And he's certainly not mature enough for that yet. Two, maybe a two and a half, you know, maybe a three. It just depends on him. Yeah, it's interesting where it's going in terms of filmmaking and the youth. And I was thinking about like how, you know, obviously with, I'll be the first to say, it. yeah, I, I do love me some TikTok every once in a while. So it's like, if my, if I feel like my attention span is getting shorter and it's harder for me to sit through a film sometimes, or I'm not like fully enthralled by it, like what's the future of filmmaking? How are, is the youth going to be incentivized to spend five years on working on a film and writing a script? And I also thought about that maybe now everybody on social media like knows how to edit and use Premiere and use editing tactics and sound design, stuff like that. And that's also amazing in and of itself. So it's, it's the art form is really taking an interesting, an interesting sort of turn. And I don't know what the outcome is, but it's like, there's, I feel like there's definitely more creators out there. There's definitely less of a, there's definitely less of a, a red tape in terms of creating your own content and shooting a film. But um, yeah, what, what and finding their own audience and, and what that looks like. You know, it's yeah. come up a few times where are we going to find the next, set of creatives you know tiktok is certainly a place to do that. you know if someone's an innate storyteller they're gonna do it in an interesting way even if it's short form so it's, it is really interesting you know i've had three conversations one that will be a podcast one of my podcast episodes and then other just randomly in life about kids young boys actually in there like from seven to 13 who are obsessed with making movies using like an ipad or an iphone and and then they're getting into cinema because they're interested in the storytelling like but they were rejecting cinema before that it wasn't their thing they wanted video games and things like that but then as they started to enjoy creating and creating with their friends then they became interested in discovering cinema yeah yeah it's cool there's a film that's like the simplest form of cinema but it's such a i think about this all the time and i'm bringing it up now because i feel like it's i think it's i think it's I think it's worth discussing because it's, I think, and anybody can relate to it, but it's a film called, I think it's called The Clock. Have you heard about this film? It's, it's a 24 hour film and every minute, so you go, it plays for 24 hours. You go into the theater and watch it, but the time of the day. So right now it's 2.24 PM. They'll find a, a scene in a movie where you'll see a clock that says 2.24 PM. And at 2.25, the scene will then change to a film where there's a clock on the wall that says 225 and that'll go on for 24 hours and i think it's something that's that i recommend to a lot of up-and-coming filmmakers and the younger audience because it just shows how sort of simple film can be but also extremely complex and I'm like and, that does not sound simple to yeah. me yeah, yeah, it's yeah, simple yeah. concept and yeah. i'm like oh you found how many stills or frames it's amazing yeah i recommend it that's really cool it definitely feels like it should be in the moma or something or yeah. like they should project it on the client the musée d'orsay in france yeah you know, that- <laughs> i saw it at lacma and it was it blew me away so i just walked in that walked in at five like five five p.m midnight 9 a.m and it was and as like the as it gets later at night the scenes get more risque and they start to change and obviously in the morning it's different so it's an interesting comparison to like what you're experiencing at that moment of the day physically yeah. as well so that's really interesting it kind of reminds me of this doug aiken show i went to as an artist and he had this really interesting edited i think it was his work 
it might have been a curation of his, like one of those events that he was curating for a while. And it was a kiss between two people. But as they got closer together, it like cut between different films of people kissing in the same kind of physical proximity. Like it was like fast cuts of two people kissing, but it was different scenes of people at the same time. And it was just awesome. It really brought, I don't know, I just really drew me in. I just couldn't look away. And it, it reminded me of like French New Wave of kind of those fast, messy edits that brought you into a different perspective. It just shows how just re- relatable it could be, right? Like it's something that that's undoubtedly like we've all kissed somebody. And yeah, it's, I've always found it interesting that you can be in the comfort of the theater or your own home and you have these such strong reactions to edited images that are put together in a certain way that it's unlike anything else. Yeah. So are there any movies that you have on a list for your daughter? It's a tough one. I, I haven't fully compiled the list. When she was like three months old, we, we did watch the new version of Pinocchio because in the moment, like I watched it, she's going to watch it now. I think as she gets older, I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be like similar to some of the films that I must have watched. She definitely has to watch Luca. Absolutely. And you know what? I have to say, like, I haven't seen any of the Harry Potter movies. So I'm ready. I'm holding out for her to watch the Harry Potter trilogy. Yeah. I'm that guy. A lot of people recommend reading all of the books together before watching the movies. Any of the movies, like all four books. I think it's four. But, you know, that allowing our kids to come up with an imagination of the characters before they get to see the way they were realized on film. And it breaks the illusion if you watch one and then read one, then watch one, read one, then watch one. That's great. That's come up a lot about literature or books or movies based on books or TV shows based on books, like spending the time reading them so they can go into the world, but also it makes it less scary because they know what's going to happen and they have their own imagination around it. And so they're kind of in control of something that might be a little bit more intense. Somebody recommended I show Miles the comic strip of Wizard of Oz, get him into the story world before we actually show him the movie. Yeah, that's really smart. I like that. And I think it also helps you know them understand w- what a movie is. It's an interpretation of something, of a book, of a story, of something that's happened in real life, and, and it's subjective. And I think that growing up, I think that's an important lesson to have. In life, everybody has their own opinions on things. And, and I think it's to each, each one of us to interpret them. And so I think that's a good comparison. Yeah. All right. So I am going to ask you my last question, yeah. which is... If there is a movie I should show my son for him to fall in love with cinema, what would that movie be? And it doesn't have to be his first movie. It can be like when he's 13, this is the movie he should see or when he's in college or whatever. I think the first movie that I think really affected me as an adult, at least becoming an adult, was Good Will Hunting. Mm -hmm. I saw myself in a lot of those characters and you still, you watch that movie now and you interpret you feel like you relate to different characters more so than you did when you were a kid. And I think that's an important life lesson that you can extract from the film. And it's a giving film. And I think that until you interpret it through different phases in your life, I don't think you, you truly understand it. And so I think it's a, I think it's an evolving exercise as you start watching films. Yeah, that's great. I haven't gotten Goodwill Hunting yet. So it's a good one to have nice. on the list. Good, good. Well, thank you good. so much for joining uh, me on the podcast. Of course, pleasure to be here. 
If you enjoyed the conversation, please don't forget to like and subscribe. New episodes release every Wednesday. And leave a comment and let me know which movie you think I should show my son. Until next time, take care.